Welcome to the last podcast of our Summer Together uh, series. It's, uh, it's been a great summer. Jack really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, we've been going through the lectionary Old Testament readings. They've all been from Genesis all summer long, and we actually wrap up this week in the first little part of the book of Exodus, which will be read on Sunday, August 27th. Jack, for us, that we call that Celebration Sunday at St. Paul's because it's kind of back-to-school day and... Uh, Sunday school will start to rejuvenate on August 27th. And, and so. doesn't all the humidity drop all of a sudden on the 27th from like 90 to 10? We wish. Uh, that is our prayer. <laughs> Usually summer for us goes till about September 30th, you know, yeah, at least. Sure, uh, sure. So, And but, by the way, uh, August 28th is our 35th anniversary. Oh, so. wow, congratulations. Yes. Jack is a blessed man. So, uh, And that was my third wife and her maid. And so I've, it's really seven anniversaries, seven wives and maids. You and Jacob. Bilcha and... You and, you and Jacob. <laughs> I tell you, I don't know. I, I hope life it's a monogamy thing after reading Genesis. <laughs> I don't know. It didn't go real. It's a pretty bumpy ride for them. You know, it's, so, it's, a, it's a tough thing to find family values in Genesis. That's for sure. So... Yeah, no, it's been, like we said earlier, it's been sort of a case of the soap opera uh, through the summer. Um, but it's been a great way to learn about the story of God through the, from the beginning, uh, as, we, as we think of the book of Genesis, from the sort of beginning of the narrative story that we have about the people of, uh, the people of God, as it's told through this ancestral story that goes men and women and, and and all the complications that we've talked about, maids and their children and so forth with those, uh, with those uh, ancestral lines. So it's been an interesting summer to, to go through together, and we wrap it this coming Sunday on this very beginning part of the book of Exodus. Uh, we start in chapter 1, and it should be said that we've left off um, with uh, Jacob and Joseph's death at the end of Genesis, um, and so Joseph's era in Egypt in power sort of comes to a close. And, uh, and in the beginning of Exodus has a bit of a genealogy there uh, from Jacob on through. And then it records uh, that Joseph dies, all his brothers die, and that whole generation. But the Israelites, Jack, continue to do what you started us off with. And that is they continue to follow the command of God in the beginning of Genesis to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and the promise has succeeded. They've grown exceedingly, it says. They've multiplied, they're strong, and the land is filled with them. So that part of the command or the promise of Genesis is, is going well. You know, the amazing thing, after all we've read and all the dysfunction and all the dis- deceit, all the despair. You come to Exodus 1 and you breathe easy and you say, it worked. It's like we're, we're back to where we began, only now it's actually working. It's not just a command. Now it's a reality. And you can begin to breathe easily, of course, for one more verse. Yeah, right. You can breathe easily. But all of those threats to God's promise could not ultimately stop God's promise. There's something wonderful about that. Yeah, the end of the end of Genesis, the beginning of Exodus, sort of wraps that and bookends it with the beginning of Genesis, and that promise has come. A nice, neat bow. Yeah, it but, is in this yeah. case. And then, like you indicated, it shifts, and the next verse yeah. over, 
verse 8 of Exodus 1. Now a new king arose over Joseph who, excuse me, now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we Egyptians. So let's deal shrewdly with them. And here comes an iron fist of violence, of oppression, of bondage and slavery and and now the the dynamic has completely shifted here um so we probably want to talk a little bit in this closing podcast about what what shifts here um the egyptians look around it's a new generation they look around and there's too many of the israelites and they become clash of culture again where one um is oppressing the other and enslaving the other yeah and what's behind this in part is that the Israelites aren't alone. I mean, there are all sorts of people groups being enslaved because we know this because when they come out of the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds, you know, when the Exodus happens, there's one verse in like chapter 12 or 13 or 14 that says, and they came out a mixed multitude. And the idea is that it wasn't just pure Israelites. They were with a lot of others. So the threat is not simply, you could, you know, historically you could say, how could a group of slaves, no matter how many, how could they be a threat? Well, if you have a group of slaves and another group of slaves and another group of slaves, and there are dozens and dozens of groups of slaves scattered around your kingdom, they can be a threat. You know, I studied the Persian era, which is later than this by centuries, but there were, it was amazing. It was like whack-a-mole. You know, that game in the, on the midway where you're having to, up comes a mole and you have to whack it, whack it, whack it. That's how the Persians were dealing with it. They had to deal with Egypt. And then they'd quell a, um, a rebellion in Egypt, and then there'd be a rebellion in Babylon. They'd go to Babylon and quell that. Then there'd be a, a rebellion up in the Balkans, and they'd quell that. So, in fact, this is realistic that a pharaoh would be threatened by so many people groups uh, becoming so powerful. Yeah, yeah. So they, and they have now bonded together. That well, eventually they bond together yeah. um, and seek liberation. Um, here you do have the clamps coming down. The new pharaoh, the, the Egyptian power structure here is now um, coming to bear and enslaving the Israelites and others, as you say, other people groups. Um, um, so less than we get the early story about about Moses and uh, why don't we jump into that Jack and uh, but uh, why don't we um, why don't we talk about the threat uh, first and how um, how Moses is born out of another period of threat Um, yeah I mean uh, the Pharaoh sees that these people are becoming too strong and so he wants to kill every boy two years and under right And so it says, we're about verse 15 and on, for those who are using a Bible. There were a couple of midwives named Shifra and Pua. And he said to them, kill the baby boys as soon as they die, but if they're girls, let them live. Big mistake. Because all through Genesis, we've seen strong women. You know, we've seen Sarah was strong. Hagar had certain strengths, didn't always last. We saw Rebecca, in particular, being strong. We saw Potiphar's wife being strong. There are an awful lot of strong women in the storyline. 
right? And the stupidity of Pharaoh is he sees power in a very one-dimensional way. So he sees the only possible threat to him could be the boys. And he says, let the girls live. But in fact, who's the main threat to him? The two midwives. The two women who are at the lowest end of the social scale because they can't have children of their own yet. Apparently, that's why they're midwives. These midwives are his biggest threat. And he says to them, kill the boys. Completely ironic for any reader. We know what's going on. But the midwives, it says, feared God and gave them families. So... They what, disobeyed. They completely disobey the Pharaoh. And look at how they disobey him. In verse 19, the midwives said to Pharaoh, because he's flustered, why are you letting the boys live? Why are you letting the boys live? So he calls them back in, asks them why they're letting the boys live. And, and they answer by saying, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are mocking him totally. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So here's Pharaoh, the son of God, right? He is the acknowledged son of God in the greatest empire to date. And the midwives take him to task on the most fundamental reality of human existence, birth. He doesn't even know that you can't control birth in that way. You can't just push a baby out. I used to teach, when I taught Bible, I used to love teaching Exodus 1. They called it popcorn babies, right? Our Israelite women aren't like the dainty little Egyptian women who have to have their babies in a palace. Ours have the baby and it's sort of like, uh, 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 out it pops. And when we get there, the boys are already gone. So it's like popcorn babies. And they're gone. And so the midwives answer the most powerful man on earth, and by doing so, they unmask his ignorance right. of the most fundamental reality, birth. He may be able to control the universe, but he doesn't know how babies get born, basically. Right. So the whole thing is a big joke against Egypt. Right, and against the Pharaoh, yeah. 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 So the midwives have all the power in this story, and they're the ones who keep the people fruitful and multiplying and filling God, even in the story, so God drops in and God deals well with the midwives, verse 20. And people multiplied and became very strong still. So the opposite happens, right? That's right. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And then Pharaoh commands all the people um, the same thing he hasn't learned. Uh, it's hilarious. The most powerful man in the universe... Kill the boys, let the girls live. It's, um, it's really obnoxiously uncreative. <laughs> right. It's like you said, one-dimensional view of... It's power. Power. Mm. It's power unchallenged. Mm. And when power is unchallenged, it doesn't need to be creative. I mean, you look at American politics now, and the one thing you could say about us is we're being creative. I mean, the courts are getting involved, and politicians, there's a little sense of of life and vitality and all the confusion that's going on here and things aren't the status quo on any side whomever you support we're not living the status quo and it's calling out creativity from people that we may not have had 
we may, may not have needed in years past. I know it's a, I know it's a trail off a bit, but I've noticed in this, uh, we everybody, no matter where they are on the political spectrum, understand this is a very tumultuous season, and uh, I'm finding that some of the best writing I've read in a long yes. time is coming out right now. I've heard some poetry that uh, mm. that is powerful, powerful voicing. Uh, all kinds of expressions, uh, uh, culturally and uh, even religiously, uh, in ways that has sharpened people's, I think, yeah. commitments and values. And so sometimes these kind of moments produce the best stuff. I think so. I think there's a frisson, kind of a, an energy that's going on in all the disequilibrium. Mm. And I don't welcome it. I mean, I'd rather not yeah, have all this disequilibrium. Yeah. I don't love it. And I have very clear viewpoints on things. But, you know, I've read some articles that have been just brilliant explanations on why is climate change politicized. And why I, I, I'm, maybe it's just that I'm seeing things for the first time. But it may be that we're seeing creativity in ways we haven't seen in a while. Yeah. Or maybe we're just maybe I'm just looking for it. Maybe but we're able to see but, it. Maybe but, we're but, just looking for it, sure. But yeah. the midwives are remarkably creative. Yeah. You know? Well let's look We'll at, see this with Moses' mother in the next line. Yeah, the, the next, next very next line. So when I say maybe you'll say a little bit about the house of Levi's man from the house of Levi, Mary's. I won't Levi say anything woman. about that. Okay. No, no all right. No, I'll you can have that one. So, no, it's okay. Except that my name is Levison and I did have a this one, I had a German uh, professor at Cambridge, and I did tutorials with him, and his name was Ernst Bommel. He came over after World War II, yes. Very German. And he would call me, yeah, Mr. Leweisen. He oh. would never call me Levison. It was always, yeah, Herr Leweisen. And, and the friend I was with from Wheaton was called Rilling, very German. He said, ah, oh, yeah, Mr. Rilling. Oh, Mr. Leweisen. <laughs> Didn't like, we, we got along fine, but I don't think he liked my name. So, so I don't think I need to comment about the House of Levi or the Levisons. We'll just call them the House of Levison. Of Levi. How about that? Okay. Yeah, we'll call it that. The House of Levison. All right. Well, so um, they're here again. Uh, they're avoiding the the command of Pharaoh, um, and uh, this baby boy is born and uh, saved and preserved. Um, and so we try to see the purposes of God uh, worked out here. And but it's. These purposes of God are worked out in very close proximity to Pharaoh himself. Right under his nose. Right under his nose. Right under his nose. Right in his face. The midwives in his face. But right under his nose, all of these acts of civil disobedience. That's exactly what we have. You know, if we want to talk politics, which we talked for a minute, we've kept off of politics very well uh, this summer. But if you want to talk politics, this is your standard text for civil disobedience for obeying but not obeying. And look at this. When I, when I taught this to undergraduates, Exodus 2, what does Moses' mother do? She conceives, she bears a son, and it's a beautiful baby. She hides him for three months. When she can hide him no longer, she takes a papyrus basket for him. She plasters it with bitumen and pitch, and I think that's the same word, pitch, used of the uh, Noah's Ark. Okay. That has pitch okay. in it. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. Now, I ask my students, did she obey Pharaoh? And they also look at me really quizzically. Yes. And then I ask them again, did she obey Pharaoh? And they say, no. Did she obey Pharaoh? 
Yes, no. She threw the baby into the river, just like Pharaoh said. But she threw the baby in the river only after she preserved the baby's life with a little Noah's Ark. And I think that's the power of this text, the power of creative disobedience, what Martin Luther King Jr. called in his sermons, creative maladjustment. All of us should be creatively maladjusted to power, especially the power of thugs, the power of Pharaoh, who doesn't understand the lives, in this case of women, he doesn't understand the basic life of birthing. He doesn't understand the power of being a mother, like Moses' mother. That is the thug kind of power. And underneath the radar, here is Pharaoh with all the power, the son of the gods, are these midwives creatively saying, our Israelite babies pop out before we can get there. And Moses' mother throwing him into the Nile, but only after she's preserved his life. Creative maladjustment. This is the manifesto of that. This is where we find that if we're too adjusted to the way things are, if we're too happy with Trump, or if we're too happy with the left, or if we're too happy being in the middle, if we're too happy with the status quo, then we're not people of the exodus. We're too, we're too comfortable, we're too aligned, we're, yeah. We're too aligned. And we should never be that way, ever. And that's what this text says. As long as people are being oppressed, as long as people are being beaten up, as long as people are being bruised, as long as people in power are taking advantage of those who don't have power, we should be creatively maladjusted. There's no two ways about it. The beginning of the story of that is really here in Exodus. Wow. It's powerful, Jack. Well, I mean, it's there. I mean, you cannot read these stories without saying, these women, I mean, and Pharaoh's amazing. daughter does the same thing. She raises the, she raises the baby under Pharaoh's nose. Right here again, a woman, right? And, and those who, who do have no power or very little power in the midwife, but have actually, but have actually the, the power of life, right? They're ones who are, who are um, making fruitfulness, making fruitfulness, bringing blessing, right? And they have proximity to power, but they are not um, co-opted by it, right? Pharaoh's daughter, proximity to power, but not co-opted by it, right? Still seen, still able to. Um, live out the promise to make life, preserve life, give life, liberate life. Our job in life is to bring life. Mm. And those policies that do not bring life need to be opposed, creatively, persistently opposed, whatever we perceive those policies to be. And here, it, it, through Genesis, we didn't have to talk about government. Remember, we, we weren't talking politics all through Genesis. We weren't even tempted. In Exodus, you've got to talk policies. You've got to talk Senate bills. You've got to talk questions of power. Because Pharaoh is all about unblinking, unthinking, unchallenged One power. One-dimensional power. And the midwives and Moses' mother and Pharaoh's daughter... They're all about creative maladjustment in the face of one-dimensional power. You said a minute ago, 
obedience within disobedience or something like that. I forget how you said it, but there was there's a sense in which she obeyed and that she, she cast the baby Moses into the river, but she put him in the basket, preserved him on that ark, that little ark, preserved his life. Yes. Yeah, that obedience within a disobedience towards something that was wrong. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I think... I think if we're not doing a little bit of disobedience, we're not doing our job. Whether it's in the church, or it's in our communities, or if it's in our politics. If we're happy with every bill coming out of the Texas Senate, then I think we need to be creatively maladjusted. We need to find something that bothers us. That is the manifesto of Exodus 1 and 2. That is where Israel really becomes a nation. No longer a family and a clan and a kindred and a tribe, but a nation comes out of the Exodus. And it comes out of creative maladjustment. Had they been adjusted, had they not cried out, you know, Walter Brueggemann, great Old Testament scholar, who was just at Perkins last year. Yeah, I saw him when I was up there. Yeah, wonderful Old Testament scholar. I mean, a delightful man to be with. He says the beginning of critique is when God hears the cry of Israel. When we hear the cry of people who are in oppression and straits and difficulties and national grief, when we begin to hear the cry, we begin to participate in God's act of exodus. And that's when Israel becomes a nation. Not when they're strong and powerful and cohesive, but when they're crying out in grief and God hears them. And all of that, the way is paved because of Shifra and Puah. Let's name them, the midwives. All of that because of Moses' mother. All of that because of Pharaoh's daughter. So often in children's books... It goes from Joseph to Moses, and we skip these powerful women who refused to adjust themselves to the status quo. Yeah, that's powerful. I'd love to close on something you said about our job in life is to give life, to further life. To further life. Yeah, powerful. Absolutely. Yeah. Powerful texts. Thank you, Jack. It's been a really, really powerful summer for me personally to share the time with you. And I thank you. And the people of St. Paul's United Methodist Church, thank you. And thank you for the opportunity to join Tommy with you. This has been delightful. But also for those who are willing to listen to these podcasts right. and participate with us. Well, within these. the St. Paul's community or wherever else may be heard, uh, yeah, we give thanks to God. Thank you. This has been Jack Levison from Perkins School of Theology at Southern Methodist University. And Tommy Williams. <laughs> I didn't get to introduce you ever. And Tommy Williams. Pastor at St. Paul's United Methodist Church, Houston, Texas. This has been great.